Hello, this is Richard Outram, and welcome to the Prepare for Growth podcast series, bite-sized wisdom for leadership and personal development. So thank you for taking time out to join me. I'm so grateful for this unique opportunity. Okay, in this week's Prepared for Growth podcast, I'm thrilled to introduce Greg Sugar, who is currently CEO and Creative Director of Bowties Limited of Vermont, an online company specializing in men's fashion neckwear and accessories. He's also co-founder of Thread Experiment, a brand of home bedding exclusively for men. After a few years as a practicing attorney, Greg founded and was CEO of the Thai Bar. Along with his wife, they established one of the first vertical online brands in all of menswear. The Thai Bar has become one of the top recognized brands in men's neckwear and accessories. They started the Thai Bar in a basement and eventually grew to a $20 million in annual revenue business. The company was later bought by a private equity group in 2013. Today, Greg is an active consultant, investor, and board member, helping retail brands get their act together. He's also a regular contributing writer to Entrepreneur Magazine. And Greg, today your key wisdom bite is developing an opportunistic mindset. So Greg, in our typical fashion, you and I have chatted a couple of times, uh, you know, the basic framework of the podcast. What have you learned? What would you change? What are you grateful for? And then, of course, a quick round. But first of all, Greg, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Um, uh, you've, uh, you've clearly got uh, some significant successes uh, behind you in terms of building a retail business. And so, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to your wisdom advice, as is the audience, I'm sure. So let's kick it off, Greg. The men's neckwear and men's bedding markets are specific niche markets. What led you to focus on these opportunities to meet those needs? Well, um, I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, my business idea came from an experience that, uh, that I took on as a consumer in this case. The neckwear experience was uh, now 16 years ago. I was still a practicing attorney in Chicago. And uh, one of my little kids threw some cereal onto my tie before I went to work. It ruined the tie. I got extremely frustrated. I just paid $60 for this tie. And um, so I thought to myself, why is this thing so much money? Uh, my shirt was like 35 bucks. Why is a tie 60? <laughs> so um, I, I that night uh, got on the internet and started doing a little searching. I actually stumbled upon a site which now we all know, but back in 04, not a lot of us knew, called Alibaba.com. Yeah. So Alibaba that you, of course, now know, um, well, it does a lot of things, um, but it actually, its core business is still um, y- hooking up uh, importers or designers or companies in the U.S., uh, really from anywhere, with factories. They're like a broker to, uh, to connect factories and to connect, uh, connect companies. And so back then, I found... Uh, some factories. I found some in India, South Korea, China, um, and reached out to all of them and tried to figure out how much a tie was. What's interesting is my first inkling was, of course, going to the United States. Even in 04, the existence of tie factories was starting to dwindle. I remember the only one to ever call me back, um, spoke with me briefly, uh, tried to charge me quite a bit of money and told me that uh, uh, they, I was too small. And so um, what I found actually were that factories in China were much more responsive and willing to do business. Um, and so I started asking around. We got samples sent to us from all these factories. And ultimately, we settled on one. We discovered soon, and this was, again, 2004, but 
neckties started at about $2.10 to make in China. So I'm thinking, wow, that's quite a margin, $60. Um, I, I learned the industry relatively quickly, uh, middlemen, licensing, reps, uh, licensees. There were so many hands in the pot um, that ultimately that's how you get to such a big uh, art MSRP. Um, we decided that we were going to do this by ourselves, though, and keep the price down. Now that that's now a business model that you hear everywhere in retail, but in 2004, it was actually quite novel. I don't really know of a single menswear company that was doing that, and there probably were very few uh, clothing companies doing that at that time anyway. So we um, ultimately settled on a factory, and we decided we were going to charge ties. We're going to charge $15 for ties, and that was it. That was going to be our business model. And, um, and so that's kind of how we got launched, which is sort of a long answer to your question. And just quickly, Threat Experiment, which is our betting, my betting brand company, um, was same concept. I, uh, I was tasked with going to get betting for our home. And I went out and everything I found was pink or turquoise and it had lace and it had flowers. And I said, you know, I need something that fits a little bit better with me. Now, that didn't mean that I needed cowboy hats or football helmets on my comforter, but I needed something um, in a color palette, uh, maybe a design scheme that sort of uh, met better with my aesthetic, my personal tastes. And I couldn't find a single thing. And so uh, that's sort of how I came up with the idea for Thread Experiment. Um, I already had my connections overseas, went through the whole process again. I won't bore you with the details, but you know, a few months later, that company was launched and we've been in business for about five and a half years. It's a tremendous story, Greg. And so this is, you know, as, as the old adage goes, you know, these great ideas and niche markets are literally under your nose. And so, you know, a couple of kind of family instances there and you found that exactly that this could be a, a demand for the market. Now, now, when you did your research, you know, with the, with the men's neckwear, was there U.S. competition around at the time or? Yeah, you know? well, 2004 was an interesting time. So even though e-commerce was a thing back then, department stores really didn't have a lot of e-commerce going on, if at all. I believe some of them didn't even have websites. If they did, they had limited number of SKUs, and certainly neckties was the forefront of what they were wanting to sell. I don't believe that Joseph A. Bank or Brooks Brothers even had a site then. And again, if they did, it wasn't very robust. So my competitors were other idiots in the basement like me. And I thought, okay, I could be the smartest idiot. I, so my wife and I, um, not that she's an idiot, she's the bright one, but we, we uh, felt confident that we could sort of take them on. And even though e-commerce wasn't, a, wasn't big back then, it was a small pie, we thought we can get a pretty big piece of that small pie. And that's what led us to get started. Right. So the platform, the e-commerce platform was a, was a major, major trigger for you and, um, you know, help you, help you build that momentum. You know, personally, Greg, I've been involved in the specialty retail markets as well. But um, and I saw some real struggles. I was actually in the sunglass business. I was with Sunglass Hat mm. twenty odd years ago, and then um, shortly after that, in the high end children's kind of apparel business. You know, the Oil Lily, Ralph Lauren, and so forth. And uh, it was not easy. So, congratulations! You found Thank a niche. You. And I don't know if you know neckwear is seasonal, or if you've had issues with uh, you know traffic from uh, you know the far east and getting stuff on time to meet the seasonal needs but um not an easy not an easy business no that that part yeah that's the struggle but as as you 
start uh, doing it year after year. You start to anticipate what those issues could be. You don't tell, you don't promise anything to anybody because you know that there could be delays or could be issues. You, know, you always build in a buffer time and so forth. I'll tell you real quick. I remember in 2000, I want to say nine or 10, my wife and I were watching CBS Sunday morning and they, um, the, they interviewed these uh, four guys from Wharton and they were talking about how expensive sunglasses are, glasses are, and uh, how they're building a company, getting rid of the middleman. They're going to design it themselves. They're going to make it less expensive. And CBS Sunday morning was like, wow, what an incredible idea, an idea that we had been doing for five or six years. So, of course, those were the Warby Parker guys. And, uh, um, you know, fast forward even just a few years after that, there was a saying that used to say, well, we're going to be the Warby Parker of blank. That was, you know, Warby Parker of pillows, the Warby Parker of shoes. And I used to always say, damn it, you know, it really should be the tie bar of, you know, pillows and the tie bar of shoes. Because we really started that model. When we heard those guys interviewed, they used so many of these familiar sound bites that we used to use. Not to say, of course, that they took ours, but it just, it sort of uh, confirmed that we were on something with the right business model. The four Wharton guys can confirm that it works. That is awesome. That is a, so. We're going to talk about the marketing piece of your of you know this e-commerce business, so to speak. So because in the in the old days, when I go back to you know uh, you know my opportunity and challenges in, in the specialty retail business, it was about sales per square foot, and we had inline stores and so forth. You don't have that issue, right? And so I want to talk about a little bit later about how you measure your success and maybe some of the KPIs you look at uh, from a from a digital standpoint, right? We'll we'll get to that a bit later, but. I'm fascinated about your history because, you know, you're an attorney by trade. I'm an accountant by trade. Um, you know, it's probably like me, not the most perceived creative profession or route in the world. And yet you made the jump to creative branding and marketing as the founder of the Thai Bar. How'd you do that? Well, you know, when you, I don't know about your path, but I made a decision to go to law school at age 21. So, um, you know, I don't think at 21, you fully know exactly what you're made out to be. Um, and I, you know, I can't say I went to law school because I always had a passion to be an attorney. I was probably a little lost back then. And that was just one of the options. I think over time I practiced for eight years, I found myself not being the perfect fit for that profession. And I think there was always a creative side that tried to come out during that time. So, um, you know, I, the profession certainly and, and the schooling pr definitely prepared me to become a better business person. Um, so, you know, I, I do I, I do a lot of the creative work, but I'm also I use the other side of my brain. And I'd like to think I know a little something about business. And I want to say I want to credit law school uh, and being an attorney for helping me to uh, being able to spot issues and do reasoning and write better and, um, and, and basically think a little bit more clear and more reasonably. And that those are skill sets and being resourceful, by the way. And those are skill sets, I think, that every business person needs. And you don't really necessarily hear about it when people talk about what their strengths are. You've got a knack for spotting opportunity, though, Greg. So tell me a little bit more about that, because, uh, you know, the, law, the legal profession, just like the accounting one, we're kind of almost linear thinkers. I get your point completely about there's probably creativity waiting to come out. I'm probably a very similar personality to you. Um, but you've got a knack for spotting, spotting opportunities. Tell us a little bit more about your acquiring that knack, you, you know, and the opportunity. Yeah, I don't know about how I acquired it, but I, <laughs> I do, I, you know, I'm not the brightest guy, but I am opportunistic. And I don't, 
I know there's negative connotations to that word. I don't mean to insult. I'm not trying to insult myself. No, I'm oper- I see an opportunity and I seize it. Um, I mean, even I think back to our very first break at the tie bar uh, for about a year, I, I call it like a lemonade stand. We were just selling a few ties a day online. We were profitable. We paid back our $50,000 loan in nine months, which I thought was, I was pretty happy about that. Um, but we really weren't a, a truly self-sustaining company. Um, but I was reading the uh, Sunday Chicago Tribune newspaper back then. People read newspapers. And there was a style section. And there was a whole article about whether people could tell the difference between $30 jeans and $200 premium jeans. Did this whole article, you know, blind tested customers and so forth. And the conclusion ultimately was that most people couldn't even tell the difference, that the $200 premium jean thing was just sort of silly. So I contacted that in my opportunistic way. I, I co- quickly contacted the, the, the reporter. I, I remember her name is Wendy Donahue. And I said, hey, I happen to, my wife and I started this tie company. We, sort, we have the same messaging with ties. We don't think you can tell the difference between a $75 tie and a $15 tie. And we think we could put people to the test. Um, and lo and behold, she gave us a call. She interviewed us. We sent her some ties. And I remember it was uh, November 12th, 2005. And my wife and I are about to walk into a bar mitzvah service. If you may remember, the Sunday paper used to come out on Saturday a little later. And I remember we got the paper and we open up the, we open it up and we see this article. It's front page of the Sunday fashion section. It's three pages long. There's pictures everywhere. And guess what? Nobody could tell the difference. And wow. she, we looked at each other and we knew this was a big moment. So that day we actually had done nine orders. That was a typical day for us back then. When the paper came out the next day officially, you know, it was distributed widely on Sunday, we did 206 orders. So we went from nine to 206 overnight. And truly from that day on, it never slowed down. Um, and a month later, I quit practicing law. So the point is, I had, be, I had seen an opportunity. I saw a fashion writer talking about a certain topic that obviously mattered to her. And it happened to follow our business model. So I opportunistically reached out to her and said, give us a chance to show you that we could do the same thing in a different industry. Um, and so that's always been the way that I've run. I just, you know, there's probably so many small examples I could see. Um, but whenever I see a chance, I jump at it. And, um, and, I, and I encourage every entrepreneur to do the same, to, to just have your eyes and ears open to anything and everything. You know, I, read, I still read newspapers, I read blogs, I watch TV. I look at anything and everything and where I see an idea or, you know, I, I seize it and um, sometimes it doesn't work out, but sometimes it does. And I think that that's a skill set that not everybody has, but is one that's good to have. Absolutely. Great advice there, Greg. Great advice. I love that. And so I, I've enjoyed reading some of your articles in the Entrepreneur Magazine. And one of them was about, you know, brands being an extension of your personality. And so I want to kind of go a little bit further because what was it about your startup brands that were an extension of your personality and why is this alignment important? Just had this discussion today. So funny. Um, I, so brands, I think that do best that resonate with customers the most, especially direct to consumer brands. So where you have a chance to have the ear of the customer directly and you don't go through a department store, they do their best when you're authentic, whatever that really means. Authenticity has to do with who you are and not who you're trying to be. Um, it's probably advice you've given all of our kids at some point. Yep. And so I've just always felt that whatever your brand is, um, it needs to be an extension of you and your personality and your beliefs, your values, because that's how you'll create an authentic brand. 
it's hard to really, it's, it's intangible. It's hard to really touch and feel, but I do believe that the voice of your company, um, the messaging of your company, even the products come, come across more authentic and more appealing to a customer when, when it feels real and it feels more real when it's who you are. And so like the tie bar was a bit of an irreverent brand. Um, we now see, uh, it's not uncommon for some brands to have a little bit of a smart mouth on, on social media or be a little cutesy in customer service emails. I'd like to say that we were one of the first companies to do that. Um, that's kind of how I am. I'm a little bit of a smart ass. I've made a few enemies in my life, but I've made people laugh too. And I, uh, I, I let that uh, seep through with the tie bar. And so we used to make our customers laugh. We used to have great engagement. I mean, again, the word engagement, which is now so become so cliche, was not a word 10 years ago when we were engaging with our customers. We used to post things on our Facebook page. Um, there was a, one of my favorite stories. We designed a, a tie-dye tie, which I was so excited about. And I said, hey, guys, coming in April is this tie-dye tie. And I showed the tie. 300 comments of that looks awful later you know like everyone said how terrible it was i was so i was truly disappointed i took another picture about six hours later where the tie was cut in half and i said okay we've canceled this and people loved it they absolutely loved that level of engagement meaning two-way dialogue you know like not only am i talking to you but i'm listening to you and now i'm acting and they they love it that's the authenticity i think that grows loyalty to a brand and, you know, and, and helps that word of mouth, the, the cheapest marketing there is. So um, those are the sort of things we used to do. I, another quick story. I, one of my favorite stories is someone blasted us on Yelp about what a horrible company we were. And it had typos everywhere and all caps. And it was just a grammatical nightmare. So I posted on Facebook and I just, all I said was, not everybody loves us. Mm-hmm. And customers loved that transparency of, you know, not bragging all the time and showing that, you know, people don't like you, but it was a perfect post because of what a, what a mess it was. And so of course everyone sort of came to our defense and it worked out great. But again, built a little bit of that brand, that authentic brand of who I am. And it came through in the company and it helped develop um, what was almost like a cult following type of business that we had. We spent annually probably less than $20,000 a year in marketing. And we were, we were up to 20 million in sales. You heard me correctly. So wow. we barely spent any money in Google. There was no such thing as Facebook. The only thing I had was a PR firm. Other than that, we spent nothing in marketing. And so, so was this just word of mouth or? It was, it was word of mouth because I'm telling you, well, we were offering a great product, which you need. I mean, if you don't have a great product, everything I just said means absolutely yes. nothing, right? Yeah. So it starts with a great product. So we offered a great product at a great price. And then on top of it, we had sort of a very sticky message, a sticky brand, and a personality, which back in, you know, figure this is 2010, 11, 12, nobody mouthed off to customers, you know? And so people were just like, what? well, who's this? What's this? And they loved it. And we would make fun of some customers who came at us. You know, we wouldn't just say, sorry, sir. If we were wrongly attacked, we would defend ourselves. We did a um, collaboration with a, um, a celebrity, Jesse Tyler Ferguson. We did this bow tie um, um, collaboration with him to raise money for marriage equality, to raise money to get uh, marriage legal in all 50 states. Well, we got a lot of nasty, you know, uh, homophobic messages, both with customer service emails, but also on Facebook. 
And I went right after everybody. And I didn't give a shit. And my, my wife walked in my office. She's like, you got to slow down. And I'm like, no, I'm not. You know, <laughs> these people are, are against what I think is a human right. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't want them as my customer. And I used the F word once in a, uh, with some of them. And I didn't care. And I think that the people who like you start to love you when they see that kind of passion behind something you're doing. And they see it's not just about the celebrity endorsement or collaboration, but it has to do more about the values of your company and how it's true to who you are. So sorry for kind of rambling, but you know, those are the sort of things I think that really helped us um, create this like huge cult following, become the brand that we did before we got bought out. That, no, I, I, and you know, this is a, a really important uh, part of our dialogue here. Greg, I appreciate you raising this because, you know, I, I can certainly for the folks who are going to be listening in, uh, you know, we're on Zoom and I, I can see Greg, his excitement level just suddenly rise. All right. <laughs> so in, in terms of, you know, your faith, your fire and your focus, right? The three Fs, you know, this is something that carried, carried through to building a $20 million business. I assume you had employees or, or, and, and, you know, these are kind of the core values that you're talking about now, right? You probably sold at a certain point where, you know, companies get past that $20 million level and maybe get to 100, you know, 50 or 100 million. And then it starts to get a bit shaky. The identity starts to get shaky because that, as you said, the authenticity and continuing those founder core values begin to, to kind of, as I said, you know, get, you know, get a bit shaky. So what do you think about that? What do you think in terms of life cycle? You sold at a certain point. And you've probably been exposed to larger organizations. How important it is, no matter how large the business becomes, for a company to maintain those founding principles as they it, grow? Yeah, it's everything. Your brand is your DNA. It's who you are. Yeah. And when you start doing your paint-by-numbers uh, brand that we're starting to see every direct-to-consumer company do, everyone looks the same. I see the same lifestyle pictures everywhere. I see the same boring, bland safe messaging that you see everywhere. I mean, there's, there, I can't tell them apart anymore. Um, and then there's some that try too hard. You know, like I, I get emails from companies, I won't say who they are, that are like, uh, you know, this shirt is trendy AF, you know, as whatever, right? And it's like their customer base is in their 30s. They don't say AF, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, slow down, buddy. Like, this is not... Don't try to like be with the cool kids if that's not who your brand and your customers are. And it's just a little off. That's why authenticity is so important because it, it feels real when it is real. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's very important. Listen, we sold our business and that was now seven years ago. And um, I'm not going to sit here and uh, talk about what I think they did with our business. But let's just say our DNA is gone. Yeah. And the company, the way it looks now is, is gorgeous, a beautiful website, um, some great photography. It's just not who we are anymore. And so it's, it certainly is a company, um, but the trajectory is not what it was. The cult following is not what it was. And certainly its marketing budget is not what it was. Um, and, and that's because there's, it's just sort of another clothing brand. And it doesn't really, it's great, but it doesn't stand out like we did back in the day. So understood. No, great answer. I appreciate that. And so, you know, what one of your other, you know, key themes is, you know, when you when you have a fashion brand, you you never great, you never took for granted that you had you had to constantly design and evolve the right products. All right. So how did you figure out what worked and wouldn't work? 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, trials that you have to go through. I mean, I, I think you have to pay attention to certain data. You know, you see what's selling and what's not, whether it's material or color or design. Um, there's a, we, I call them losers. There's a lot of loser designs that you buy a hundred of and, and, and a year later you check and you have 87 left. That's not a good thing, but you'll hit some winners and the winners are great and they, they help keep the lights on and they help build your business. So, I mean, my whole thing was, um, I wanted to be the biggest, baddest tie company, you know, like it's, it's not a big industry. But we, we took it on and we said we would be the biggest and baddest. And so, you know, by the end, we probably had 6,000 ties on our website. Um, every, and, and that wasn't just every color, every design, every whatever. It was every width. It was every length. It was every, you know, we, our theory was if you came to our site and you didn't find a tie you like, that's your problem. Because we had something for everybody. And um, so that's like how I think it's important to build a brand. And along the way in doing that, of course, you have some, some real losers. Um, but, I, but I do think product development is the most critical thing to a, well, at least to a, an apparel company. It is everything. Um, if you have a crappy product, you know, you might get that first sale from your witty comment on your Facebook post, but you're not going to get a second sale um, if your product stinks. So to me, that was the most important part, actually, even though I haven't even talked about that. But to me, that is the most important part. Got it. Got it. Okay. And so um, how did you make the product in the, in the early days? Was it you and your wife in, uh, you know, in a garage? I, I, how did it work? Because I do want to hit a certain point, which was very painful for me 20 odd years ago when I was in the specialty kiddies area, you know, a worldwide um, franchise brand wanting to break into the U.S. market and we couldn't get the traffic right from the far mm. in a seasonal rate. So I do want to hit on the point about how do you make the product? And then at a certain scale, you had to, I, I assume, source it, source the production from elsewhere, right? Well, the and production, that, I was always sourced elsewhere, but um, I started designing it myself. And that, that sounds a lot fancier than it was. I would just draw like two stripes and I'd say, okay, make this one blue and make that one white. Yeah. It was really basic stuff. Um, the the factories often have their own swatch books designs you can choose from they are typically not great they weren't back then they've gotten better they were pretty bad um their coloring was off uh i still sort of made do the best i could i remember getting swatch books like literally by the dozens i would go through 50 swatch books and choose six ties because that's how i was really trying to pick the best stuff it really wasn't working for us. So about a year in, I uh, put an ad out in one of our trade journals and I said, you know, I needed a designer. And I found a guy who was the head designer at the second largest necktie company. And he didn't even necessarily need the money, but he called me, he just asked me about, I think he had an entrepreneurial bone in his body, you know, a little bit. And yeah. he wanted to hear about what I was doing. He said, listen, I'll tell you what, I'll do it at night for you. No problem. We hit it off on a personal level. And so I remember getting my first designs from him and I was like, holy <laughs> shit, I look like a Thai company, finally. <laughs> I couldn't believe how great everything looked. And it had instructions on how to make it because ties that are woven, and a lot of ties out there are woven, they're really three-dimensional. There's a warp and a weft. It's not a two-dimensional flat sheet of, that's a printed tie. And we were doing woven ties. And so you actually need a lot of instructions for the factory so they make it right and the coloring comes out right. I didn't know that. And so now he's giving me directions that we give to the factory. The factory is doing it right. And everything is 
vibrant and professional. All of a sudden, our ties really looked like designer ties. And it was the first time. And that changed everything. Wow. And then, you know, we started, he only did a few from us up front. We started getting a little bigger. We hired him more and so forth. We ended up uh, going with a second designer later on who became one of our highest paid employees, basically. Because the truth is, he was the most valuable person on our team. Understood. Wow. Wow. Okay. All right. So we've talked about, you know, the tie bar. Now let's fast forward now. Now we're in kind of COVID environment and your, your current gig is with bow ties, obviously. Now there's a great story here. As you and I spoke over the past few weeks, there's a great story about how you had to pivot quickly in this you know, particular environment to meet a new demand opportunity. So take us through that process. Uh, you know, I understand now that, uh, you know, that the company's now capturing the market to sell some face masks. Um, so tell us a little bit more about that pivot, how you saw that opportunity um, in this particular environment. And, you know, we can talk about the results so far and, sure. and so on, but tell me a little bit about it because that's fascinating. So just for some brief context, I sold the company, the tie bar in 2013. I had a non-compete, no men's anything uh, till 2018. Um, and then I, uh, a former competitor reached out to me. Now that competitor is the current company, Bowties of Vermont. Um, they're a small business, 27 years old in Vermont. Um, I've always been such a fan of theirs and their owners kind of wanted to get out. We spoke on the phone. I went to go visit them. And long story short, like three weeks later, I own the company. <laughs> so it's kind of fun to own a competitor. Um, went awesome. in, love the staff, absolutely love this company so much. Um, so we, we, uh, yeah, we, COVID hit, right. And, and suddenly, um, of course, nobody needs a bow tie. Nobody needs a necktie. Nobody's wearing cummerbunds anymore for weddings. And our business came to a, a, a screeching halt. Um, I, there was one day in early March, we sold three ties. I mean, it was, yeah. it was sad. Um, I, I had, I, I put some money in the bank on March 10th to get us through payroll. And that took us till I kept waiting for that Congress bill, the congressional bill to pass for PPP. And it finally did. So the day it passed, which was a Friday, was the day I furloughed everybody. I, I was like, okay, you know, you now have unemployment, full unemployment, $600. I can't do that. I mean, it sort of like coincided right when my money ran out. So I ran out of money. I furloughed everybody. Um, during a very short three-week period, uh, as you may remember, there was a huge scramble in this country for medical masks, yeah, of course. Not, yep. not fashion masks. And I don't know why, but I somehow felt compelled to try to help with that. I reached out to a contact of mine overseas. And for three weeks, I don't think I slept more than five hours in a night. And I ended up selling hundreds of thousands of masks to medical people around the country, anyone from EMS people to nursing homes, to doctors, ER rooms, everybody. I was just selling masks. And what the, and I, I wasn't making a lot of money. The, the price gouging was, was disappointing to hear at the time. So I really wasn't making a lot of money per mask. But I sold hundreds and thousands of them. And you do a little math, and I made a few bucks. Yeah. So um, at that point, it started to get to, oh, I know, our, our, our seamstresses who were unemployed uh, started making masks. I, I donated my fabric, but what they did at home where they were making masks for frontline workers, for for uh, people who are working in elderly homes, um, doctors, and so forth, they were making these masks. And I, I kept our emails going to our customers. And every Thursday, I did a sort of a feel-good email. I was tired of all the bad news. And so one of those emails was about uh, how our seamstresses are volunteering their time and making masks for people. 
So we sent it to our customer base and I got a lot of emails back saying, hey, why don't you make masks for us? So I called my head seamstress and I said, can we do something like that? She's like, well, you know, the problem is this takes me like 20 to 25 minutes. We don't necessarily have uh, the manpower to do this. Like, you know, so we talked and she, she said, let me come up with an idea. She, ca- she created the pattern of our mask, you know, the sizing, the fitting and all that. And I sent it to my contact in China. I said, do you think you could do this? And he said, yeah. So I took all of my money I made in the medical masks that I were selling to medical professionals. And I just, I put it all on black or red or whatever you want to say. And I, and I bought a lot of masks, a lot of cloth masks. And we, I designed them like I designed ties. Our masks look like ties, but they're masks. And um, say, uh, we sold uh, like our first 640 minutes. Um, we sold 2,002 hours. Wow. And I was like, I think we've stumbled on something. So every time I, I, I kept doing 2,000, 5,000. And every time I made the money, I made some profit. I bought more. I bought more. I pay my employees. I slowly started to bring a few back. We started doing the bow bow ties matching our masks. We're using the same fabric, same designs. And the next thing you know, all my 23, my 23 employees are back. I I was able to hire every single one of them back. Um, And I became the, what I, we, we offer more styles of masks and in more sizes than any other company in the United States. I have become like the, I might say the biggest mask company because technically Gap is. Gap has been selling them by hundreds of thousands to businesses. They do a lot of B2B. But I would be hard pressed to say that there's, there's not a lot of other companies that are selling more than we are masks each day. And uh, I've, we've now hired, I think, our ninth new employee. So we're now 32 employees. Um, we have a night shift. We have night shifts. We have weekend shifts. We can't keep up with demand. We used to ship stuff the same day. We're now three days behind, which, you know, a lot of worlds, that's actually not terrible. But for me, I like to be same day or next day. And um, we just can't, I mean, the demand is just insane. I've ordered now at this point, we've probably sold, you know, hundreds of thousands of masks, but individually, unlike the medical one where I was selling in batches of 50,000 or a hundred thousand at a time, I'm selling them one by one by one. And we're selling hundreds of thousands of them. And it's been wild. And it like, our company doesn't look the same anymore, but everyone's getting paid. They're getting paid in some cases better than they were before. I'm giving bonuses and we're all, we're all back at it. Um, but of course, ironically is I don't want to be in the mask business. I don't want to wear a mask. I want to get rid of masks. I want to go back to bow ties. I'm tired of this crap, but um, you know, it is what it is. And everyone's just, you know, in, in the retail world, if you're still employed and you're getting bonuses on top of it, you're typically pretty happy. What a fabulous story. Yeah. Wow, that is superb. You know, you know you've hired back, you've created new jobs. Um, I assume all that activities in the US. I mean, how, how wonderful is that story? That's fantastic. Yeah, and- it's great. I mean, our cloth masks are made overseas in China because we can't make this yeah. many masks in a day. It's just not possible. But, that, but, but by having them made in China, we've created other jobs here. Right, exactly. By the way, those, those jobs pay the same or in some cases better than our manufacturing jobs. So why is that so bad? This yeah. goes, if you, if you do some internet searching, I wrote an op-ed in the Chicago Sun-Times in 2007 about why it's not so bad to manufacture overseas. I got yeah. hate mail. I got a death threat. It was pretty bad. But I still to this day, and, and by the way, we're a made in America company. We make all our bow ties and neckties and so forth in America. Yeah. So there's a little irony to this. But... There are times where if you make it overseas, you can generate jobs domestically. Yes. And that's what we're doing. And I'm proud of that. 
I, we have people come at us like, why aren't you making them in the U.S.? I'm like, well, we couldn't do it. But good thing that we made them overseas because now look, I've got everyone back at work. I got new employees and everyone feels honestly grateful to be in the retail business and working and working hard and getting paid well. There's not a lot of companies saying that right now. That's absolutely right. That's yeah. absolutely right. Okay. And so what does that mean like, for, the, for the long-term equity of brand tie post-COVID? Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. What was the question? What does that mean for the long-term equity of, of Bowtie? Oh. Well, we're... Post-COVID. Am I allowed to curse? <laughs> uh, maybe not. <laughs> okay. We're in trouble. Because in this new Zoom culture, let me tell you, um, yeah. men in general, when it comes to fashion, if we have an opportunity to wear something comfortable over dressy, we take comfortable every time. Yes. No guy wants to put on a tie over yep. shorts and a pole. <laughs> so in this new Zoom reality that we're all living in, yep. I don't know where we're headed uh, post-COVID. Um, I will tell you that there has been cycles in neckwear since the early 90s. Um, there was a resurgence in like 2008 to 2013. That was great. Um, it's since really died down pre-COVID. God only knows where it's headed now. I'm a little concerned. I'm looking into other products um, that are sort of uh, – on brand with us, but but definitely new. And I don't know where we're headed. I'm a little nervous, but um, I think that's why I'm doing some of these bonuses because I'm like, all right, making a few bucks. Let me share it around because I don't know where they'll be later. <laughs> Smart move. Smart move, Greg. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. So let's move to startup marketing because you mentioned your budget was, you know, 20,000 on a, on, a, on, a, on a significant revenue base and how you grew that. So what single piece of advice, Greg, would you give to startup marketers? Well, that's tough. Um, <laughs> you know, I actually teach a course at FAU here in uh, Boca Raton on entrepreneurship. And we, I'm doing this whole thing on marketing because it's basically going to take up two, two, courses, two uh, classes, which is six hours. So I don't know how I'm going to summarize this for you quickly. Um, but I will tell you this. You've got to come up with something that, you, first of all, Amazon has to be in the back of mind. Always. Yes. Always. Yeah. Doesn't have to be on the front, but you better consider Amazon. You need to think of something, you need to create something that, you, that people have not seen before, uh, either the product itself or at a price. They've never seen it at the price that you're offering. If it's not one of those things, I don't know how you break in into retail. Um, and people say, well, aren't we, you know, we make great shoes and they're really comfortable and they look great. So does everybody else. Right, so you got to create something that is either through utility, through style, or through price. Something that makes a person who's scrolling through through their Facebook feed say, "Wait, what is that? Wow, let me click on this." That's not easy to do, but that's that's the product you got to be selling. And definitely, definitely start as a niche company. Do not come out with forty products out of the gate. Pick one product, get good at it, be that niche company. I don't care if your revenues aren't big. If you become the best at that small thing, you will become a success. And, and, and would, you, would, you, would there be any add-ons to that response, Greg, if we said we're living obviously in a very hyperactive social media world, there's a lot of worldwide raves out there. Would you add on to that response to that earlier question if we start to say, you know, we're just in an overstimulated, hyperactive social media world? Would you add anything to, 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 to that response? 
Well, competing, um, competing for eyeballs in this in this you know hyperactive social media world. Um, I, I'm not sure I totally understand the question. Meaning that, like, should I be considering the fact, like, when you consider social media? Yes. Does that yeah. help factor into your decision of marketing? Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. I mean. Like we do Facebook campaigns and they're great, but the truth is we get the most value out of our campaigns when somebody shares it, when they share our ad, because that costs me nothing. It costs me money to put them in front, put my ad in front of their eyeballs. But when they share it with their 5,000 friends, that's actually free to me. So you got to create something that people want to share on social media. You got to get inside their minds because everybody's they're they're Everyone has a brand on social media. Right. I mean, we all, you know, he's the funny guy. He's the guy that loves his kids. She's the one that goes on her boat. Like Everyone's got a brand. So you got to try to think of like, what, you know, what are you selling and what kind of photography or product or whatever that's going to resonate with certain type of brand of person that's going to share it for free on social media. I don't know if that answers your question, but it does. It does. No, it does. You know, it's, um, no, it's, it's a, it's a great answer. I appreciate that. Sure. My, my, my son is, is actually working with our, you know, our friend, both of our mutual friend, um, to launch, you know, a kind of new app. And so he's, um, he's in the social media, he's the director of social media. So he's meandering his way to try to get the eyeballs and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but thank you for that answer. It's, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not an easy world, right? To get those eyeballs, right? Not yeah. I mean, you, you could buy the eyeballs, but yeah. it's too expensive to, you can't, you can't survive only on eyeballs you buy. Yes, you have yep. to be able to get free eyeballs. Yeah, that's and right. Without exactly. free eyeballs, you won't make it. That's the truth. That's exactly right. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll flip Greg to the other segment of, of our dialogue here. What would you change? Greg, open question in area, in any area, life, business, whatever. What would you change? Can I talk politics or no? (laughs) (laughs) You said any, but I I won't do politics. If I could change anything. (laughs) Oh, God. I mean, I will say, I think, uh, I mean, I think social media (laughs) is not not healthy. Um, All right. Keep going. Tell me more. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just feel like, I, I look at, I look at where we are, and really, all generations are guilty. I mean, I, I'm almost forty-eight. I hold my phone in my hand all the time too, so this is not a kid problem. Um, we have just become so consumed with everybody's uh, approval. Um, we, we, we think that our opinion matters to everyone. Um, you know, we do get a little nastier. You know, we, when we have issues with customers on, on social media, I try to get it, get them on the phone because once they hear a voice, they realize we're human and they talk to us like a nice, like a human being. Um, it's really easy to forget that when you're on social media. Um, I, I just like, I, I don't know. It's a much bigger dis- discussion. I, I did see this question in the preparation, but I was like, <laughs> shit, I don't know the answer. Oh, I could, sorry. Um, I don't, I don't know. I'd like to, there's so many things I want to fix, but um, I, I don't have a short answer. I, we, we got to get social media figured out for a lot of reasons, business, politics, uh, relationships. Um, it's, it's a, it's all screwed up right now. And I think one day we will get it all sorted out and we'll look back at this time and be like, Oh, remember how ridiculous we were, but I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what a refined social media environment looks like. 
you know, the, um, you know, the, the, the spiritual community will say, you know, more mindfulness, switch your phones off, be more present. I mean, it's yeah. obviously, they're powerful words, but um, there's a lot of meaning, you know, so um, we'll see. But I agree with you. I, I think I have conversations with my boys all the time and we're just as guilty. Exactly, we're, we we're are. Fixated, we're fixated on this stuff. And yet, um, you know, I, I, I give my share of lecturing to them, but... Um, I'm on the phone as well, right? You're lecturing to them like this on your phone. Now you listen up. You're holding your phone. I know. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. What are you grateful for? Um, yeah, I mean, God, the risk is sounding cheesy. I mean, in the business world, I'm very grateful for my wife. My wife has been a great uh, business partner and life partner. And I mean, it's like having a second brain. Uh, like, you know, people who are on their own in business crave partners in some ways, of course, not in others. Yeah, yeah. They cra- you know, they, it's when you're at the top of, a, of an organization, no one compliments you. You know, um, no one tells you you did a good job. No one is brave enough to tell you when you didn't do a good job, you need to fix something. My wife does a great job of doing all those things. And I think it really helped me become a much better business person. And uh, she constantly reminds me now, I mean, I, I'm working so hard right now at this mass business. I really am trying to grow it. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've just, I haven't worked this hard in many years. And my wife constantly, like, reminds me that, you know, I, I, I can lose a sale right now and still eat. You know, my employees will still be there tomorrow, even if I don't answer that email and get that three mask sale. But my DNA is to hustle for it. And to make sure that I get it and answer every question and, you know, try to close the deal. But she, she's does a great job of like, you know, Greg, just calm down. You know, if you don't get that three mask order, you'll get a different three mask order. Um, so anyway, she sounds like a grounding force. And, and, and on that point, Greg, it's a very important point with, you know, COVID increasing the kind of blurry lines between work and family. Right. I mean, everyone's working hard is, is the, is a basic consensus. Everyone's doing longer hours. Whatever was the blurry line over weekends has become even more blurry now. True. How do you? And I've noticed in our you know short couple of dialogues that we've had that um, I love the fact that uh, you know when your response back was you know prioritizing your time with your kids and their extracurricular activities and sports and your wife. Share some of that with with, with our audience. How do you prioritize that time? It's got to be very intentional conscious calendarizing whatever whatever means you use but you've got to be really intentional about that you know lunch with your wife a day because otherwise you will all work seven days a week uh, particularly in this environment how do you do it um well you work at you know you take advantage of the time when the kids are busy doing homework and you yeah. get home with it and you use that time i just i you know maybe it's the way my parents raised me i know i've heard advice over the years but I have just always placed a huge priority on spending time with my kids. Yep. Um, a, I enjoy it. Yes. Uh, but B, I really think that, uh, you know, you don't get that time back. And th- there was a commercial years ago, it was a radio commercial. I don't even know what it was for, but it was like a dialogue. It's a com- again, it's a radio commercial. It's a dialogue between a mom and a, a, a daughter and a father. And she said something, she mentioned some random comment that he had said that was really sort of a ridiculous comment. And he says, well, when did I say that? And she says, well, you said that when I was like 12. 
He goes, I don't remember saying that. And then the narrator comes over and says, be careful of what you say to your kids. That they, they remember the weirdest things. Yes. And so like, I, I really like try to be very conscious in what I do and say with my kids. Cause they do remember sort of the weird, I'm sure we've all experienced yeah. our kids saying, Hey, remember we did X, Y, and Z. And you're like, I have no idea. Three kids. I can't tell you guys apart anymore. Your childhoods. I can't separate. <laughs> it was one big childhood to me, but, um, so I, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's been, you know, my wife and I, I prioritize like we like, you know, our relationship too. So we go out for sure every Saturday night, but every Friday night we don't go out. We tell our friends, we're not going out Friday nights. We are home with the kids every Friday night and we hang out in the pool or we play um, taboo or whatever. We just something stupid, but we're still together. And I'm, you know, I have a kid in college and a junior high school and she tends to be a little social, but you know, I force her to hang out with us. My 11 year olds even like starting to not want to hang out as much, but I'm like, Sorry, <laughs> you're going to have to hang out with us. And I just hope that they're the same way with their kids, you know? Right, right. You know, ditto for, for, for my two boys. We really raise them like that. And um, what would you say in this current COVID environment? Do you think it's, um, it's promoted more of the kind of family time? Or, or what would you say has happened most recently? I, I, uh, I think it's actually taken a, a negative toll on our kids. I see it all the time. doesn't mean I think we should rush them back to school. I'm not one of those people. Yeah. Um, I'm about to sneeze. Okay. <laughs> you you that? Live, <laughs> live media. There you go. Love it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, I mean, it, as much as I want to be with my kids, um, their, their development comes from their peers and not from their parents. And so yep. they're less apt to go see their friends and they're comfortable being at home. Our schools are opening up um, uh, voluntarily on next on this Monday, in fact. So in other words, the kids can go back if they want or they don't have to. And both my kids don't want to go back. And they're basically because they're comfortable where they are. And I just, you know, that, that comfort I should say that discomfort of sort of going to my son starting middle school, for example, that discomfort he's trying to avoid will help him grow and yeah. he's missing out on that. And so, um, I mean, it's certainly it's helped family cause we've been together more for sure. Um, I don't think it's put a strain on anything, but I do think that there's, you know, there's only so much you get from your family and there's a lot more you get from your peers and your friends. Well, God bless you on that one, Greg. This is uh, the world needs more of that, more parenting, like, like what, what you're explaining is no doubt about that. Is my personal opinion, anyway. Yeah. All right. So, so, so the quick round. Um, how do you think the COVID environment is going to change small and medium-sized businesses going forward? I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to say things that are not very novel here. Um, I, I do think working at home will become more accepted. Yeah. So when you're on the professional call and the dogs barking, you're less embarrassed. Yeah. Um, I definitely think that you know. I think the office space. Um, industry is in deep trouble. Yeah. Brick and mortar retail was already in deep trouble. God only knows where it's headed now. Um, You know, and I I think everyone's sort of been more lax, you know, you don't have to get dressed up. I remember my first few zoom meetings in March, I was still getting dressed up. I was wearing a tie shirt and well shorts, but you know, I was still looking like, and now it's like the fact that I have a polo on right now is a shock. You're lucky I have any shirt on for that matter. No, um, so I, I, uh, so I, I do think that those are we've we've all sort of let our guard that we've all sort of said you know maybe we shouldn't be holding ourselves to certain standards and we can relax a little bit. You know, I think New York City's in trouble as a city. Yeah. Like I, you know, businesses moving out, people are now moving out. I think the suburbs are going to grow. 
So I, I don't know. This post-COVID environment is going to be very interesting. It's re- it's really hard. I will tell you, as a mass company, not to bring it back to that, but um, I don't know when this ends. You know, like you say, well, when the vaccine, when we get the vaccine, but but that's not really the total answer. You know, it's not going to be hundred percent. It won't be widely distributed. Um, people are going to are getting used to this habit of wearing a mask and almost feeling like, why was I never wearing a mask in the first place? And so I don't, you know, I don't know what that part, I, I think we're going to rush to do certain things like maybe go shopping and go to a football game. But I start, there's definitely like in the business world, I think, I think we're going to see some really big changes and some of them we can't even identify yet. Right. And, and you hit a great point, Greg. Think about, you know, in, in theory, how long it takes to kind of, you know, develop a habit. And you mentioned the word habit. I mean, there's going to be some significant habit changes, right? Some of them which we know are kind of temporary, but there's going to be a lot of displacement and permanent habit change, right? I mean, as you mentioned, look at, you know, work from home is definitely something that I could see it may not be full of work from home, but we've changed our culture in our business. We're a large, you know, business in the home services space, change our culture towards, you know, accepting more work from home, online education, uh, you know, online courses, virtual meetings, virtual get-togethers, eating at home, and all yeah. the stuff that goes with that, entertainment from home is, you know, obviously these are things which are very disruptive. Uh, the yeah, the entertainment from home for sure, because, um, you know, down here there are places you can now go to bars and restaurants and stuff, and we're still just hosting people coming over. Right. I, I'm just as happy at home with, you know, three or four couples us having drinks and laughing than I am going to a bar. Absolutely. Um, that uh, one's, I think, a big one that you point out. Absolutely. Okay. And so in your opinion, you've been a successful entrepreneur. You're you're doing a lot. Um, What's if you had to single out a significant blind spot for startup entrepreneurs? You know, this is the kind of if you could lean on maybe a mistake, a big mistake you made as an entrepreneur. What singular blind spot would you say that uh, startup entrepreneurs have got to watch out for? Um. Was this your questions? I didn't see this one. It's a good question. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to be a little redundant. I think people, and this is in one of my articles I wrote for Entrepreneur Magazine, yes. people overlook the significance of a good product. It, if you're in the, you know, I can't speak to entrepreneurial companies with services, although I suppose this applies to services as well yep. um, and technology. If, you're, if your product is not great, you are never going to make it. End of story. And they tend to get caught up with small things like, what does my logo look like? Uh, what does the resume of my co-founder look like? Uh, you know, what does our lookbook look like? It's a fashion thing. Um, those are not important. You know, what matters is, you know, what does that thing look like and how much is it going to cost the consumer? You know, and that's what they need to know, or what you know, how does it function? Whatever the quality of the of the uh, product we're talking about, um, and so I think that's the blind spot. Is something I know it sounds so incredibly basic, but if you don't get the product right and at the right pricing, forget it. Like, yeah. You're just not going to make it. Understood. Okay, great answer. Your one piece of mentoring advice for up and coming business leaders. Um. I, I, I remember I did some consulting and I always heard the same thing, which was, well, what if I, you know, I, I want to order a hundred of these and not, uh, maybe I should order 500 just because, just in case it takes off. 
it never takes off. <laughs> uh, there are no overnight successes. We used to say that Thai bar was a nine-year overnight success. Um, so just keep, you know, like when, when things are ne really never stop preparing for tomorrow. So even when things are good, you have to keep assuming that they may not be good tomorrow and um, keep pr produced product development, keep the pipeline going, product development of marketing ideas, of hires, of office space. You have to just kind of keep moving. You, you can't just like set it and wait. You got to like, there's just got to be constant movement. There needs to be a productive day every day that you work on your company. And this concept of, you know, um, I can't do the next thing until I first see how this thing pans out is bullshit. Get, keep, move, keep the thing moving constantly. Keep pushing it uphill and, and, and never stop to wait results on something. And I, I just, I see too much of that. You know, I'll, I'll say, hey, have you spoken with so-and-so about selling to them? Well, let me first see how the first sale worked. No, you, you throw it all up against the wall at the same time. And if they all say yes, you have a great problem on your hands. That's awesome. That's awesome. In this environment, Greg, you know, uh, with a lot of puts and takes in our environment, what data do you track? Do you, do you, do you, do you, do you look at anything to kind of assess what's, what's working, what isn't? You know, um, when, yeah. you, when you build your companies, you know, one or two KPIs, however you want to, however you want to describe them. Well, I think what you need to see which product is selling well. So yeah. whether that's a category or a very specific product itself. Yeah. And you got to run with that. And you pour mon more money into that. Yeah. And you desert the stuff that's not working. Yeah. I don't care how much of a passion project it is. I don't yeah. care how much, like we have a shoe line and I love it and nobody's buying them. So yeah. I gave up on them and I hate it because I love, I love the shoe. So I hate giving up on it, but that's just not working for us. So you just got to find what's working and, and run with it. And that, and like that KPI could be a very pro, a very actual like design, like that gray flower design sells well, keep ordering it. Use it in your ads. Put it as the first product on your mask page because that's going to hook the person. Um, I will say from a marketing standpoint, the number one thing is really cost per acquisition of a customer. Yeah. Um, and then understanding its lifetime value. I mean, you need to basically understand, is your marketing campaign working? Is it worth continuing to press on or do you have to pivot and go into a different campaign? You have to, know, you have to follow your marketing dollars. I mean, that seems like such a given, but some people will just put a campaign that they think is clever or looks good and says, that's it, that's going to make, you know, this concept of branding campaigns is a luxury that only very few companies can do. You, if you're a small company, ditch the branding campaign. If your campaign does not get you sales, it is a worthless campaign. Right. Great advice. Great. Last question, Greg. Very last question. The best piece of mentoring advice that you've ever received? Um, I kind of already shared this a little bit, but uh, I was playing racquetball years ago with my friend Jafar, and we were in the middle of a point, and my phone rang. I had forwarded the business phone onto my cell phone. And literally the, the phone goes off. And back then the phone wasn't going off very much. Let's say it was 2006 or whatever. Yep. And it rang and it kind of disrupted our point. And I ran outside and I got the phone. And it was a customer who wanted to order a couple ties. And he, I came back in. He owned his own business. And he looked at me and he goes, he's Iranian. He has a great accent. I can't <laughs> do it. But he says, Greg, he's like, you got to let, let the sale go. You're not going to get every sale. 
Um, sometimes you're going to miss it and they're going to go to a competitor and that's okay. You need to have your life too. And it was, it was great advice. And, um, I, I, to this day, and that was so at least 15 years ago, um, I, I do have to remind myself of that. I told you how my wife, I've shared that story with my wife who, who throws it in my face, which is what I told you earlier um, about how she uses that because it's true. You just sometimes have to let it go. You can't get every sale you got to have a little bit of a, of a personal life. Greg, thank you so much. This is tremendous. I mean, the wisdom bites you've imparted, ah, oh, this is fabulous. What a wealth of information and, and knowledge. And I really appreciate it. I love, I love, you know, for the folks, I keep saying it, but the folks who can't see you, you're on Zoom. I, I love the passion. It's fantastic. I, I wish actually people could see that, but um, it's, it's come through in, in this session and I really, really appreciate your time. I know you're going to rush off now and go and have fa- dinner with the family and with the kids. And as I said, God bless you for that. That's awesome. We need Thank more you. people like you, Greg. So I, I told you I'm going to be starting my own podcast soon. So when I do, would you plug it for me? Of course I will. <laughs> and guess what? On my podcast, you can curse. <laughs> of you course. be a guest I- on my show and <laughs> you will curse as much as I want you to. <laughs> Thank you so much, Greg. Thank Happy you. Pleasure. Love you. Take care. Thank you so much. Pleasure, Richard. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope that you found today's session valuable. If so, please follow me on Instagram at outcome.richard and post your comments. Thank you again. Until the next podcast.